Hey everyone, Dan here introducing another quick hitter episode on Bradley Cooper's Maestro. This selection has a bit of a personal bias between me and Jared as good friend of the podcast Kate Eastman actually makes an appearance as an active role in the film itself. Also, it simply stands as an interesting addition to Bradley Cooper beginning to work behind the camera as well as in front of the camera. If you like what we do, feel free to give the pod a like, follow, subscribe, review, whatever you want on whichever app you do you're listening on. Also, you can find Jared on threads at Jared Concessions, and you can find me on X at Dan Concedes. And without wasting any more of your time, let's hop right into Bradley Cooper's Maestro. Well, that's an interesting marriage of words. You've got that look, that look that leaves me weak. You with your eyes across the table technique. Welcome, one and all, to Concessions. I'm Dan. And I'm Jared, and we've slept with both of your parents. And we'll do it again. And Snoopy was there watching. Oh, man. That's not really a mood setter, Snoop. Well, nowadays, Snoopy used to be quite the aphrodisiac for me, but now after this film, it's uh, been knocked down a peg. Yeah, I used to get real horny about Snoopy, and now it just reminds me of bitter arguments fighting on Thanksgiving. Which does also arouse me in a different way, but it's just kind of a mashing of, of symbols that isn't very comfortable for erotic uh, encounters, you know? Yeah, this movie, if it's seen by a wide enough audience, will have a noticeable impact on the psychotherapy business. <laughs> um, and what movie is that, Jared? Well, we're here to talk about Maestro, Bradley Cooper's latest uh, I, I, I masterpiece, perhaps in in certain ways. Uh, I'll go. I'll go right out and say that I, I didn't like this movie quite as much as his previous effort, A Star Is Born. Although I did like this movie quite a bit, um, and I think that this will be remembered as like a real masterclass in certain ways. And I'm, it's already being nominated for a ton of awards. I feel like just that one, two punch of stars born and maestro from Bradley Cooper kind of puts him in that sort of echelon of directors where if they're putting something out, you probably know it's going to be some awards bait. Right. And I don't, I don't, I, I don't say that in a negative way. It's just, he seems to have really have his finger on the pulse of like, Hey, this is the type of movie that wins awards. <laughs> and I typically gravitate to those kinds of movies. But anyway, this movie was directed by written by produced by and starring Bradley Cooper, uh, along with the incomparable Carrie Mulligan, who is just outstanding in this movie. It was co-written by Josh Singer. The rest of the cast is rounded out with Matt Bomer, Maya Hawk, Sarah Silverman, and friend of the pod, Kate Eastman, up there as Ellen Adler, uh, former lover of Mr. Leonard Bernstein and uh, daughter of uh, famed actor and acting teacher Stella Adler, who... Um, for those of you who don't know, Stella Adler is one of the 20th century acting teachers most responsible for the trajectory of naturalism mm. over the course of the 20th century. Uh, some of her techniques uh, ha have direct impacts on pretty much every amazing actor that we've heard of today, uh, you know, our, you know, our contemporaries and probably a generation or two back as well at this point. Um, so I thought that was kind of neat. A um, little bit of uh, extra trivia there that Kate's playing someone who uh, is very, very much in the center of like what we know as fantastic hey, acting today. Uh, Kate got to play a Nepo baby pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. And uh Kate not being a Nepo baby, uh, not having like, you know, these familial industry connections. Good for you, Kate, for being cast and just crushing it in uh, Bradley Cooper's latest masterpiece there. I'm going to say masterpiece. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll dig into the things that I think are masterful and the things that I don't think are masterful. But uh, Dan, what are your initial thoughts? Well, I'm, any movie that puts our friends on a screen and blows up their face to multi-stories, high proportions is a masterpiece in my book. Yeah, real, real nice, tight close-up on Kate's 
wonderful face, uh, using her <laughs> wonderful voice to sing a wonderful song. My favorite moment in the movie, for sure. <laughs> unbiased, of course. Absolutely unbiased, yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, when you're saying, like, my initial thoughts on it, and, yeah, it definitely, I can understand why this one gets the term Oscar bait, um, or even just between this and A Star is Born. I've seen snippets of A Star is Born. I actually haven't seen it end-to-end yet. I really need to. But Bradley Cooper definitely has that aesthetic or style that, whether deliberate or not, like, I'm not in the head of Bradley Cooper, um, is certainly of the style of movies that do win awards, which like you, for the most part, they're at least interesting for me to watch. I mean, there are of course famous duds in famous, like ones that seem like cynically reverse engineered to be an Oscar film. Um, well, like, I mean, I wouldn't call it cynical, but like a couple years ago, Coda won. And I was like, that felt like an ABC family movie. Like I, I watched it and had already forgotten about it. And I only watched it because it was on, uh, it was nominated. So, you know, the point of Oscar made, it's supposed to be good. Uh, marketing for people um but i do think this one has more on its mind and is enough of a singular vision that i wouldn't fully call it oscar bait but i can understand why someone would call it that um like for instance my favorite thing about the film when i thought it was interesting going in when i'm looking at the casting right now and carrie mulligan is lead role on it has you know first billing and i was like oh that's interesting about you know maestro about a film sensibly that in the title is not her name. Um, but it's that sneaky. And I don't know at what point you could officially say, I realized that that's what it was going on where she like slowly takes over the movie throughout, uh, especially the second act and, uh, completely by the third act. Um, and by the time it becomes completely her movie, I'm like, Oh, this is actually really interesting. And I'm like, and the emotional depths that are being discussed now become much more complex than like, you know, your standard music biopic or musical figure biopic, which I think we have more than enough of lately and which fall into the Oscar bait category. But I think this move of actually putting Cooper's character in the passenger seat for a little while and giving the outside perspective sort of does this interesting in-between thing that there, there are like two different kinds of movies that it could have been. And somehow it manages to marry both. It could have been, you know, your standard musical genius biopic, um, you know, like the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody or Rocket Man or something like that. Or it could have been like the what it's like to live in the shadow or be the the forgotten partner of it, like Priscilla, which just came out. Um, and those two, they have their strengths and weaknesses. But like this somehow does both. Like you get to really understand. Bradley Cooper, uh, Bernstein through the eyes of Carrie Mulligan, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does make sense. And I can see why that would be an attractive trait uh, that this movie has. I, I think that worked the opposite way on me, where it Ooh. felt a little bit disjointed, like it was trying to do both and didn't really dive deep enough on either side for me to be really satisfied Mm, I think mm -hmm. that this movie has all of the familiar trappings of, you know, the musical biopic that we know and that, you know, it hits all of those hits all of those really well. And Cooper is so just completely transformed into Bernstein by the, by, you know, from the beginning, but certainly by the end with the aid of all the age makeup and stuff like his, he like nails the voice so totally the mannerisms like all of his his um play with like the cigarettes is so specific and perfect and dialed in where you know if you've seen enough footage of of Bernstein over the years both just being interviewed and conducting it's clear that Cooper completely just embodied the physicality and and all of that good stuff and mm -hmm. obviously that sort of performance is something that the Academy likes to reward. Yeah. Um, uh, and then on the flip side, you've got Carrie Mulligan, who's just, just a force to be reckoned with where, yeah, she's doing character work, but not nearly to the extent that Cooper has to. Right. Mm -hmm. um, like she's more like that traditional leading lady where I don't see Carrie Mulligan disappearing. I'm seeing Felicia's experience being, sort of uh transposed by Carrie Mulligan and like reaching like a 
kind of deeper past just simple character work and uh, and really like blowing up the whole thing. And I wanted even more of that, you know, like I I think that this movie was developed to be a Bernstein biopic, right? Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese got together and they're like, hey, let's make a, a, a Bernstein biopic. And there was probably a certain point where um, Spielberg was going to direct it and then he didn't for one reason or another. Uh, probably because he wanted to do the Fablemans. Um, so they hired on Bradley Cooper, who transformed it into this different beast altogether. I don't think all the way successfully, like I would have liked to have even more Felicia and have even less Bernstein be, you know, make make him kind of sit in the back for, for even longer. I wasn't all the way thrilled with like their love story either. Like if it was going to be about both of them equally and it was going to be anchored by that love story, even that wasn't explored enough for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I did feel the same way where there, yeah, there were a couple different movies that were going on at the same time. And I think it kind of goes back to the challenge that uh, you had alluded to where, you know, this is uh, it's called Maestro. It's supposed to be about Bernstein. People are coming for Bernstein. They're not coming for Felicia like that. That movie, it just wouldn't draw butts and seats, yeah. um, even though just from the text of the film, I think it could be the more interesting story. Um, but it would be like if this film Priscilla that came out earlier this year, if like no one knew who Priscilla Presley was or like no one could identify the name of Elvis's wife, like. You know, could you have said who Bernstein's wife was before this film was ever produced? Nope, definitely not. Definitely learned about her because I was, you know, going to watch this movie. But yeah, on the flip side, yeah, Priscilla's yeah, so household I, I name. Just, I just don't think it would have. I don't think you could have gotten it produced. Like people have been like, "Why are we making this movie? Uh, no one's going to want to see this." And I think so. The, the interesting way that they subverted to try and give her the kind of center spotlight i think is admirable but i think you are right it does kind of jumble it a little bit in the end uh, but it at least got me interested in or at least subverted my expectations a little bit for like your standard musical biopic i need to say it right biopic 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 because honestly uh personally i kind of hate musical biopics i think they're mostly pretty boring pretty bland uh, just kind of hit the no hit the notes and go paint by number and off we go. Like, I don't know. Uh, I can't even tell you the last one I saw. I think I saw, like, pretty much ever since Bohemian Rhapsody did gangbusters and there's just been, like, one or two or three Oscar bait style, mu like, musically related biopics every year since then that have all been bland at best. I was like, oh, well, we're just going to keep getting these. Like, I think last year we got, like, the Whitney Houston one and I was like, yeah. Why, why are we even doing this? <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a Bob Marley one that's being just, like, dumped into theaters in January. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I'm hoping this trend is on the way out. But yeah. I would at least say in the craft of it, this is the most interesting one. Yeah. That. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think if I'm going to compare this to the recent or semi-recent rash of, of musical biopics, Bohemian Rhapsody being the, probably the most famous one, kind of the biggest one very favorably <laughs> uh, you know I'm, I'm comparing this one very fa favorably to those mm -hmm. i think if i'm comparing this to um like a family drama um you know a drama where you've got men leading a double life and what that does to their spouse or spouses mm -hmm. um and looking at it for, like with that sort of critical lens i this movie is less favorable to me. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. Um, hmm, yeah, I didn't realize I was going to be the uh, the cheerleader here between the two. <laughs> well, uh, no, no, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Like Bradley Cooper and Carey Mulligan are both just perfect in this, and I think it's 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 so funny. Like it's one one of these words that like has been such like been so overused and has lost all meaning over the course of however many decades that movie critics have been using this word to describe movies like this. But this movie is sumptuous. Mm. <laughs> like, like just all of the like train old school Hollywood transitions, mm -hmm. the way that over the course of the movie, it really, really 
commits to making the movie actually look like it's being produced in all those various time periods. Right. Um, I think, I think the aspect ratio actually slowly grows from the beginning in the the fifties, I think is where it starts. And, and it actually like blows up to like, by the end, you, it looks like a movie that was made in the two thousands. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was just neat and just perfectly just executed in, in all ways. I am less thrilled about the actual content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and I think we'd agree on that one where this is very, it's technically fascinating. The story itself, yeah, leaves me a little inert, leaves me wanting a little bit more. Yeah, it just didn't quite get its emotional hooks in me. And you know me, man, I I cried at the behind the scenes footage from Pinocchio. (laughs) Like and this movie swings for the emotional fences. At least it feels like it, like it is. And it didn't really get me. Like even though like cancer, like dying, like like those are those are triggers for me. Um, like talk like talking about those themes, like a loved one dying of cancer, and even like those scenes didn't quite get under the skin. Yeah, um, yeah. I would say, um, and you could tell the movie was kind of design not designed that sounds cynical um but it was culminating in the the thanksgiving snoopy scene where you know she basically finally airs out what they both knew about each other the entire time and just been afraid of actually saying um but i actually i mean the whole her you know developing cancer and i would and it, it was getting to me but i did think the way that they then finally signaled to the audience that she passed i was like oh well uh, uh okay uh, oh yeah, they just hugged in a field. Well, it was it was tasteful, but not super impactful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, it took me a second to realize. And then sometimes films will do a great job of that, where it takes you a second to realize, and then it hits you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. But this one's like, it took me a second to realize, and I was like, uh, oh, all right, well, yeah. Um, but you know, sub- film is a subjective medium. Who we all respond differently to it, um, right? But one thing I did find very interesting, which I thought was a very good move, which Oscar bait movies really lean into, and this one did not, is, you know, there is, uh, it's a classic trope of, like, going back into another period of American history or looking at our own history, examining some of our faults, some of the divide, some of, like, the contradictions within the American psyche or the character and, you know, the way that queer characters are, well, queer people in the mid-20th century in the art scene in New York, like, have a lot of, uh, well, oppression. <laughs> I mean, for lack of a better word, and which requires this sort of double life that uh, queer people are always living anyways in this time and even to an extent still today, and how that can translate into, like, understanding that maybe this is the only way Bernstein could have lived. Like, he could never have been his authentic self because he just, it was literally illegal at the time. <laughs> um, yeah. And... But in in a worse movie would have stopped the whole film for a second. Had Bradley Cooper like look Carrie Mulligan in his face, like, "Don't you understand who I am in this world and what that means?" And like, <laughs> it didn't it didn't have to do that. Like that that's what like uh, a really mediocre Oscar bait movie would do. It just kind of it just kind of inhabits it. And it's like, it's the fact that it's never said that it just hangs over there. And and the fact that like when that Thanksgiving scene finally hits, it's like. That's the way that that probably would have played out in like in a psychologically true way. It wouldn't have been like Carrie Mulligan looking him in the eyes like, I know who you are. Just admit it to yourself. Or like that would have been hacked. Yeah, I, I agree that it handles those themes in a far more subtle and satisfying fashion. I'm not sure if I would buy that either, man. I feel really? like what the movie was more closely examining was how that sort of thing was prevalent, obviously, but that Bernstein was powerful enough that he didn't really let it stop him for. Yeah. I have to play by the rules. Yeah. Like, like he's, you know, rich and white and famous and male enough to still just do whatever the fuck he wanted, regardless Mm -hmm. of what it would do to his family or his reputation. He pretty was pretty openly like, courting young men throughout the movie in public yeah and, that, like that almost felt surreal when back to your quip at the beginning when he like kisses both the people in central park in new york 
in like the 50s or 60s, uh, 60s probably, but regardless. Um, and at first I was like, oh, huh, well, I guess they're like, you know, sophisticated aristocratic New Yorkers are weird, weird and they kiss each other on the mouth and that isn't that strange. All right, whatever. Um, and he like looks at the baby's like, I slept with both your parents. And I'm like, I mean, we still are in like mid 20th century America. You can't just go around smooching guys in Central Park like no one saw that. Um, I, I, I would assume that the like bohemian art scene in fifties, sixties, New York was pretty damn open about things. I, I even think that back then it was probably more since homosexuality was so swept under the rug that men being a little bit more affectionate with each other openly in a variety of different ways was probably more common, mm. um, because, you know, of course nobody's gay. Right? <laughs> they were I, just very good friends and they I were just roommates. Mean, I just mean continuing going on like the scenes in like the 70s and 80s where you know they're like partying and he's still like you know openly flirting with young men right in front of everyone including his wife I, th I thought that the movie was pointing more at look what powerful men can get away with mm. and look what it does to the people around them and then at the end he's sort of still doing it but it, the movie I think is doing this thing with like Kane or Daniel Plainview or any of those really powerful men that just just you know loved ones be damned over the course of the movie end up really really sad and alone at the end mm -hmm. I thought that's what it was kind of doing but he sort of just seemed to be enjoying himself still and then the movie ends with him still yeah, enjoying that, himself and let, let's sit in this for a little sec because I'm really not sure what to do with it exactly where the penultimate scene is him assisting this young new uh conductor and like giving some tips and tricks and stuff like that and and it's like you know painting him in a positive light that he's a great mentor and can like really loves the craft and all that fun stuff and then the next scene is like this really grotesque dance like club scene where they're playing tainted love right tainted love? Mm -hmm. yep um and it's like it's purposely shot where like all the colors just look really nasty on his body and you see every nook and cranny and gross yeah. shadow and he's they're all like sweaty and disheveled and he's like rubbing all over this kid that's probably a third his age more less than a third his age yeah. and it's like at least to me it felt like it was so clearly telegraphing is like he's a dirty old man like he's got nothing left he's just now this is what he does and he is just like this uh, like like what carrie mulligan said the sad old queen at this point uh and what a great line that was the bet that was the other really great line there's i slept with both of your parents and yeah you you're gonna be a sad old queen yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, so good. Um, but then the next scene is kind of like him. They they get his last moment. He's like, "Yeah, you know, I made some mistakes, but like everything turned out pretty well for me, didn't it? So I'm kind of doing all right." It kind of like, had that feeling. Like that was his that was his attitude at the end, being interviewed. Even yeah, I forget I forgot exactly what the very final line of the movie was, but it was sort of him almost dismissing his feelings, or like he's talking about Felicia, but he's not. It's not, you know, he, he's like happy they had their time together, but he's like all the way moved on. Yeah. And he, like, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He, he makes some sort of like somewhat disparaging joke about it. And then, then it just cuts to credits. Right. Yeah. So I was like, I was having trouble understanding where the audience was intended to land with the juxtaposition of those two scenes, especially given all of the, the content of the films that or that led to it. Yeah, like is it like a tar where it's like his fall from grace and he's now because no, I mean he pretty much he, dies beloved by yeah he never he it. never fell from grace in real life so why would he in the movie? Yeah, and you don't see like this sort of even if you don't fall from grace you don't get this social reckoning or come up and it's like there's still this like you know this wound or this rot that's inside you because when you know that you're treating people like shit like that still can get to someone and he just kind of seems and you don't even at least I didn't feel like, oh, he's like barely masking it. Like there is pain, but he's like, you know, smiling through what he's done. He's, it just kind of seems like, well, yeah, you know, I made some mistakes, but everything worked out well. Yeah. Kind of feels that way. I, I honestly couldn't even tell you what Cooper was going for. Cause I, I, I would assume it, it has, has to be something along those lines where like, you know, we, we see some sort of fallout or, or we specifically don't see any fallout. And I don't know, it's sort of writing those lines where it's sort of vaguely gesturing at, 
you know, look at, look at what powerful men can get away with and what it does to their soul, their humanity. But mm. it's not really there because Bernstein just, you know, died a beloved, successful old man. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I mean, this movie is going to get discussed alongside Tar forever. Which, and I, I think we have to, I think we have to do it because like, obviously there's, you know, there's so much of, of Bernstein as a major character in tar, even though he's dead and he's not on screen. Mm-hmm. There's like a classic trope that goes all the way back to the Greeks where, you know, unseen characters have like a huge impact on the, on the scene characters in the, in the, in the, the play or the movie. Um, and I, I'm so tempted to just point out, Hey, here's two people who have had extremely parallel lives. You know, he, he was just born, you know, 30, 40 years before Lydia Tarr and mentored her. And she has this exact same thing going on where, you know, she's, she's dealing with her queerness. She's dealing with whatever she's doing with her students. <laughs> and um, he just dies you know, old and happy and still doing his same old bullshit. But she being a woman gets absolutely fucking tarred and feathered for doing the exact same. What shit. <laughs> that was not intentional. <laughs> oh, good shit. Good shit. But it feels that way to me. Like, like it's, they're almost the same movie. It's just, this is what happens to powerful old men nothing and here here's what happens to a woman behaving in the same manner yeah it's interesting because i like i find it a little yeah yeah, i'll say annoying that like when you look at most commentary on maestro if i like pull up the letterbox and look at all the comments like it's not tar oh like bradley cooper wanted to make tar and he didn't make a tar and it's like i think what they're exploring are pretty different um i mean namely because of the presence of Carrie Mulligan in this. Like there is no, uh, there's no analog to that in tar. And like Carrie Mulligan is so much the heart and soul of this film, um, which, you know, of course on the surface there in like what you're saying, like there's so much connective tissue, but I don't think Bradley Cooper seeks to make something like tar at all. Um, And I think, yeah, that's interesting that when you compare the two characters, and I guess this is more tar talk than, uh, than maestro talk, but the, 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 the quote-unquote problems that are quote-unquote solved by the time Lydia Tarr is coming through, it's like her queerness is no longer has to be hidden. Uh, she can be a woman at this level of power. Like, that's possible where during Bernstein's time, like, that, that's probably, like, A, it just was proven to be, it never happened, but I would argue it probably was impossible. Like, no Lydia Tarr could have risen to the, the heights of Lydia Tarr during Bernstein's era. Um, but so then that, that, peels it back and they are very similar characters where they're uh they're charismatic i mean lydia turn a very different way than bernstein i would say but they are magnetic people they are singularly gifted and they abuse their power and and it's almost because they have this uh dogged determination that they they don't take no for an answer and they don't like they don't let things get in the way of what they really want to do. That's why they're so successful. So it's almost like the price of like, it, it, it felt almost like a necessity that for them to reach that high, they have to be like this. And that could be a, you know, a greater uh, commentary on like, what kind of people do we celebrate and lift up and bring to the top? And what does that say about us? Like what's required to be at the top like that. Um, but past that, I just see these explorations as very different. Um, I mean, I guess it would be almost like the difference in like Priscilla and Elvis. Like they're like just very like, yeah, they have the same subject matter, of course. Uh, not not to disparage because like Priscilla is much better than Elvis where um, I I just straight up don't like Elvis where I like, I at least like both Maestro and Tar. Um, but I, yeah, while they're looking at very, very similar figures, I think the way that they explore them are so different as to make the comparison kind of silly to me. Uh, so I never, like, I just didn't understand why that connective tissue is so talked about right now. I mean, we're just, we're, we're living in uh, the, the age of, <laughs> you know, Leonard Bernstein on screen. It just, it, <laughs> they, these things happen. Like, think of the illusionist and the prestige coming out like 
very um, very shortly after one another, there's a common, common occurrence where two very similar movies will be released back to back, even though they have nothing to do with each other. The creative teams are utterly different. They may not have even known that the other one was in development. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. It happens a lot. And yeah, it's kind it, of an unfortunate thing. There's a specific name for it. I think. Yeah. I'm about to say there's a phenomenon behind it. Yeah. And it's just something to do with the way that the zeitgeist is, is moving in one way or another, just these things happen. But Man, well, first of all, I didn't know a whole lot about about Bernstein until I was reading about him before watching Maestro. Mm-hmm. So, like when I was watching Tar, I had no idea like the magnitude of like what it means for her to complete her Mahler cycle that she mm-hmm. never gets to do, and just to what incredible like you know just her her outlandish reaction to not getting to do it. Then going back and reading about Bernstein's whole life's work, really, really being that Mahler cycle, you know that he he thought of as even more important than his own composing mm-hmm. and how in real life and in then in maestro he in just dramatic triumphant fashion yeah. completes his Mahler cycle and how cooper decides to devote like five ten minutes of the movie to just that moment which is and which was an awesome moment it was it was an awesome moment in real life and in the movie and now going thinking about tar and how like that's what was in her head like that's what she thought she was going to be doing uh, by I think I think I forget I might I might have them flipped but uh, Bernstein I think completed his Mahler cycle with Mahler's second is the famous one in the cathedral that we see in the movie and what and Batar has already done that at that point and she's finishing with Mahler's fifth I think is what it is but she but just the fact that that is like the thing that she's chasing because mm-hmm. that's the thing that Bernstein did famously. I, I need to go back and watch Tar because it's going to have like so much more weight for me now that I've actually like seen the footage and I, I know how important completing that Mahler cycle would be to a student of Lenny. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, you're right though. The comparisons are, are fairly surface level. I just think it's fascinating that this has happened once again, where like dramatically similar subject matter is populated two very different films i need someone to write a review of maestro as lydia tar oh my god she'd just be pissed that she wasn't a, a side character she'd be <laughs> yeah, pissed that she never she'd, popped up yeah she'd be pissed that kate wasn't playing her <laughs> <laughs> that would be a lot of fun um it's actually a very small thing i don't know if you noticed this um but there was i don't know if this was intentional as like a jab at the whole family because this was something that was kind of a annoying me for a lot of the movie and i think this is the only gesture that i think the director or that cooper also understood it too is there's a scene early or earlier on where the um you know they're i think they're essentially newlyweds and they have a couple kids and they're getting interviewed and they talk about how um it's kind of like the first glimpse that uh felicia is like i'm starting to kind of live under his shadow i'm now becoming more domestic while his career is taking off and she's talking about how, like, oh, you know, I'm not acting quite as much as I used to. I'm not taking on as many projects because, like, raising a household is so uh, there's so much involved. And as she's doing it, the camera kind of nudges a little. And all of a sudden you see the maid with the children as she's saying that. Yeah. And she's like, oh, running a household is so difficult. And um, and then you see the maid pop up, like, uh, throughout the rest of the film. And I think it's a very clever jab at, like... Mm-hmm all these people live in a fucking fairyland. Like yeah. they, their lives are so divorced from ours. Their troubles are so different from ours. And like material uh, want is just so like, they've never even pretended to want for anything. What she's yeah. like, she's like the daughter of essentially like a Chilean diplomat or something. Right. Like and he, you, in the very first scene of this movie, he has his major breakthrough conducting that symphony in mm-hmm. Carnegie hall when he's like 23 years old or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I, but at first I was like, oh, that's very clever. I really like, I think that's a good jab at like sort of the, the solipsism of everyone in this little, uh, snow globe of a world essentially. But then by the end of the movie, the mate starts becoming more of the butt of the joke. And then I start wondering like, oh, maybe, maybe Bradley Cooper was not nearly as in on the joke as I was. You don't think? I think I think I think he, that was captured in like such a specific way that of course he was. 
Yeah, and I, I really want to think so, but then I don't know what to do with towards the end when there's like she becomes like the comic relief of trying to get the dog down from the wall or something like that after like a really heavy scene. And now it's yeah. starting to play almost like the, what's her name from family guy, uh, the character of Consuela and family oh, guy. Right, 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 right. And I'm like, is that what we're doing now? Like we're completely changing or did I just miss something? No, I don't think you miss anything. I think that there's some weird tonal stuff happening in this movie. I think that there, <laughs> I think there's a weird confluence of ideas and tones in this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the whole thing watching it, but honestly, it's probably not going to stick with me af- much longer after this conversation ends. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's like the whole the whole thing looks elegant on its whole, but like when you start peeling it open, you're like, what, what's that doing there? Yeah, I mean, I I do. Here, here's just a quick thought exercise that maybe we could dabble in a little bit. Um, obviously, Bradley Cooper is a remarkably gifted artist, right? There was a time when Martin Scorsese was going to direct this himself, but he decided on The Irishman instead. There was another time when Spielberg was going to direct it himself, uh, decided to hand the project to Bradley Cooper. Hmm. So maybe you could take Scorsese and I could take Spielberg and we could talk a little bit about what that might have looked like. Well, I think Scorsese would have been much clearer towards the end. Like that ending would have been different. I think it would have, like The Irishman, I think it would have, sat much harder in an old man reckoning at least interiorly like kind of similar to the irishman where um de niro's character i mean yeah he's old and in hospice and like no longer on top of course but like all things considered he did fine (laughs) yeah um but you're seeing like this the spiritual rot of that that what's left of this man after all that and that that could have been now that i'm even saying that loud that could have been a fascinating thing with someone who is such a gifted artist and like, especially in music, which is always so closely associated with like, you know, spiritual uplift and, Oh yeah. And like he always talks about like the song and his soul and like, right. Well, and, and that's, and that spiritual uplift is something that has been instrumental, no pun intended, but there it is in uh Scorsese's career as well. Yeah. He, he never misses that in his movies. Um, so I think it would have, it would have been much more interested in a character who, somehow is has so much of this like soul that is singing all the time but then at the same time it's just so rotten to the core and like what that looks like in a singular being and right. what that would do to someone in the end i think it, the end would have had much more of an irishman punch yeah yeah it would have been, it would have been interesting i think that makes me think of like just just the fact that he is that age right uh, that we see bernstein at, at the end of the movie I think of um, Johnny Cash and his covers from near the mm. end of his life where it's like, mm. you know, when he does In My Life, it just has a little bit more oomph to it than when 33-year-old John Lennon sang it. Right, right. Even though John Lennon wrote it. Or same same thing with Hurt, Hurt right? It, yeah. just, it just means so much more coming from an 80-something-year-old widower than it does from 30-something-year-old Trent Reznor at the height of his career. Right, <laughs> like, right. Uh, and I think it would, been, it would have been a similar thing with Scorsese. I think Spielberg, I mean, we know firsthand with the amount of verve Spielberg directs Leonard Cohen music. We saw yeah, it just yeah. a couple years ago, kind of adding fuel to the fire of Bernstein is real hot these days in Hollywood. Um, I think, yeah, I think there would have been a lot more emphasis on performance and him actually we uh, us actually seeing him compose music him actually like working mm-hmm. on presenting it a lot more discussion of music itself and you know i think i think we could probably both agree that spielberg's methods are a little bit more um a little bit more catered towards the the like the the spectacular right the spectacle of yeah. it and yeah. and that sort of thing what i think would have been bigger and more finely uh, more f- kind of like a finer point on on a lot of that stuff, but I think my preferred version of this movie is directed by Scorsese and still starring Bradley Cooper, giving almost the exact same performance, but uh, with a little bit more care kind of given to yeah those ending scenes. Bradley, yeah, and almost giving a little more of his performance from Nightmare Alley. I can't really conjure that up in my head very well. What do you mean? Oh, really? Um, 
or you saw yeah Guillermo I, del Toro. I, I did once you know two decembers ago yeah well just this like at i'm more thinking like towards the very very end where it's like i i it's still kind of seared in my head i forget his very last line but like his eyes he's like he's done like there's no humanity left in it and they're like kind of bulging out of his head he's, his neck is kind of craned out and he's like thanking the the circus barker or someone for a new opportunity i think oh to be the uh i forget the word the freak or the tweak or something like that um but there's just like nothing left in him he's like almost yeah almost like an animal like i i could have seen bernstein played a little more animalistically like a little more of like a just something driven by pure like id and pure drive and like seeing and and at first like you could have him like very buttoned up very uh polished sophisticated just like bernstein is and like just as he gets older as like as the con like the spiritual consequences of his actions start to accumulate and accumulate like the animal just starts coming out more and more and more and becomes and you see it a little bit in that tainted love scene where he's just kind of this like sleazy old coyote looking thing yeah yeah totally um, but then in the last scene he like completely gains all his composure back and he almost looks like a like an old mr rogers character yeah, he seems like he's he's feeling great at the end. Yeah. Which, I don't know, it's fine. Like, I, I don't need my lead characters to suffer eternally for no, me to enjoy no, no. a movie. But this just seems like the kind of movie where it trains us to kind of want to see the consequences of his actions. Yeah, it's like all this stuff happens. Like, you just sat through a whole movie of all sorts of very large things happening. It's like, eh, yeah, and you just kind of kept on going and then died. Okay, Yeah, bye. maybe that's just my, like, unwashed desire to see someone rich and powerful fall from grace well and that's what i was even thinking is i would no i would have found it well a, it would have been a historical because he didn't um but let's say it's a fictional character let's say it's like tar um and bernstein is let's say tar is the real character bernstein is a fictional one um where you can make him fall from grace yeah i would think that would have been too hackneyed it would have been too like like and when you act bad boys and girls Bad things happen, so don't do it. And yeah, it would have been a little too moralizing, but like, yeah. and like what Scorsese is so excellent at, um, with even this new one with Killer of the Killers of the Flower Moon or The Irishman, where yeah, while you don't get your physical comeuppance, like it still leaves wounds. You can't avoid that. Yeah, I will. I would have liked to understand more about what sort of wounds that left on his children, or mm, yeah. that sort of thing. Although, yeah, uh, you, I mean, you even see that kind of set up with no payoff where he just looks his daughter right in the face and just fucking lies. He's like, the rumors, not true. Oh, yeah. It's the, the jealousies. Uh, people say the worst things about me out of, out of jealousy. <laughs> yeah. Just, they're all haters. Don't da, listen to haters. Da, darling, you, just, you, must, you mustn't listen to them. He just yeah. lies straight to his daughter's face and just nothing. She's just like, oh, well, that's just Lenny, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah just oh yeah crazy old lady um <laughs> uh, yeah i uh I, I did like this movie i know i've spent most of the time talking about what i didn't like Ooh. but overall this, this is an enjoyable movie and it's 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 wonderfully made and it's fun to watch and i i just don't think it, it swings high enough on the on the message or on the trying to you know capture the feels as they say. Yeah. And, you know, it's got us sitting here hemming and hawing for about 50 minutes now. So that's something. Um, but that, oh, that's, um, oh, shit. I just forgot. what. Oh, that was really funny. Is my theater experience, actually, up in the Landmark Theaters up in San Diego. Um, it was a Friday mid-afternoon, I think, me and my girlfriend went. Uh, we were the youngest people there by about 30 years. Oh, yeah. And it was about half full, I would say. And... I swear I've been to a lot of movies in my life. I've been to a movies with what you could say, quote unquote, annoying groups of people. I've never been in such a disruptive fucking theater in my life than a theater full of boomers. It was absurd. They wouldn't shut the fuck up the whole time. Oh, I don't stand for that shit, man. Where, um, like, you know, the big Mauler cycle scene where he's, you know, it's like the big triumphant uh, height of the film, I would say, at least when it comes to like, uh flare it ends and it's just like this quiet moment where you're just supposed to kind of be in awe right right and you hear like four or five fucking boomers wow wasn't that something carl 
I was like, guys, shut yeah. the fuck up. I don't stand for that. I actually do. Well, if that starts at a movie theater I'm in, I literally do will say as like loudly in a big daddy voice, hey, shut the fuck up over there. <laughs> uh, I really should have, but I'm, I'm too Midwestern, too timid. Yeah. Well, let's go see more movies together and I'll, I'll, keep, the, I'll keep the old people quiet for you. Let's, let's purposely find movies with the, or that will have the most annoying boomers in them and just start picking fights. Oh yeah, I've got I got my cadence down really well. Hey, turn off your fucking phone over there. <laughs> or we, oh, yeah, we need to we need to just move to Austin and go to the Alamo Draft House where they the staff doesn't stand for that shit. Oh, that's fun. You're gonna like uh, we're gonna be sitting next to a movie theater. Someone's gonna start talking. You're just gonna like put your arm around me. And I'm gonna be like whispering, and you're just like tell them to stop. Please tell them to stop. It's like hey hey, cut that out. There's a guy snoring behind me during Avengers Endgame. <laughs> And like a big snoring movie. I was like, I have to turn around and be like, hey, wake up your friend. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the worst. Hey, what movie or movies do you recommend to, uh, to people who like Maestro or maybe instead of Maestro? Oh, man. Um, compared to Maestro. Okay, I got to think of the bones here. Biopic. It's a, I mean, Priscilla is biopic. definitely. Hmm? Biopic. biopic. A biopic, right. Priscilla is definitely one that jumps to mind. If you have one in your head right now, I uh, do have one in my head. Um, okay. It's a movie that, that it's a movie that was a lot better than I thought it was going to be, and it sort of lives in the shadow of Bohemian Rhapsody, which came out I think a year prior. Um, it's Rocket Man, and oh, that was good. I just skipped it because I assumed it was just bad Bohemian Rhapsody. No, it was. It's just good Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, and I think specifically the re- the reason I bring that up, even though there are a lot of a lot of good similar movies, is that the, it has a very very striking focus on Elton John's uh, you know, platonic relationship with his best friend and songwriting partner Bernie Taupin. Okay, and the movie is all the way about that mm. uh, as much as it is about Elton John's, you know, meteoric rise to fame. And it deals with very, a very complex relationship between, you know, very, very loving, affectionate, uh, just all in relationship between uh, a gay man and a straight man who are best friends and it's platonic, but there's so much more under the surface as well. Mm -hmm. And it's all just about how, Topin feels sort of in Elton John's shadow and the way that they, the both of them deal with it. And then it also just has really, really over the top overproduced, um, you, know, you know, musical sections. And then uh, Taron, Taron Edgerton is like really, really, really good as Elton John also, but the movie is way darker than Bohemian Rhapsody. Like Bohemian Rhapsody doesn't really get too down into the weeds and like the end of, of Freddie Mercury's life and mm-hmm. dealing with that. But rocket man goes all the way into Elton John's uh, battle with addiction, for instance. And it actually goes really dark during those, oh. those, those portions as well. Yeah. I'm really sad that that movie really got lost in the shuffle because it was so similar and uh, came out so soon after Bohemian Rhapsody. Another, another case of what we're talking about earlier with um, movies that just happen to be very similar, get produced alongside one another uh, pretty often, but rocket man's much, much, much better than Bohemian Rhapsody. And I think it actually has a, stronger more interesting central relationship to it than maestro did hmm. okay well that actually like i said i like i kind of dodged the whole glut of musical biopics but i'll uh i'll give that one uh i'll give that one a, a fair shake i suppose yeah I, re- um, I recommend it it's interesting um and now i'm like flipping through a bunch of films i think might be similar i still kind of want to sit on priscilla maybe it's just because the first thing i said so now it's, i'm like got tunnel vision on it and kind of similar to what you're saying is it focus well focus on the relationship because it focuses on priscilla um but it it seeks to explore the the mythos of elvis presley through the the lens of someone next to him um and and not in the and it's never framed as like she's next to him she's under well she is under his shadow but it's not it gives her center stage to show what that experience is like and especially uh, the experience of similar to uh, uh, Maestro, like, 
a relationship that probably shouldn't exist. <laughs> like they, they uh, something that really a relationship that only people with lots of power can maintain and right. create in the first place. I haven't seen it yet, but I plan to. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And also, you know, Sofia Coppola knows how to shoot a movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she does. <laughs> I, here, here's a question for you. I, I know that, you know, Francis Ford Coppola had really three just monumentally amazing movies in the first two Godfathers and Apocalypse Now. And he he's definitely made s- some bangers since, of course, but... I honestly feel like Sophia's batting average as of right now is way higher than her dad's. You mean like for, so for like, he, he hits like the 800 foot home runs, but he's not getting on base too often. Exactly. But she's literally hitting a double every single time. Oh, interesting. I'm pulling up her. A beguiled Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, Priscilla. Like they're all very good. Yeah. Yeah. They're, at, yeah, they're all at least very good where, yeah. Um, Francis Ford, like that's funny because now that you mention it. I don't know if I can, like, off the top of my head, rattle off too many more movies by Coppola yeah, other I, than... Dracula, The Outsiders are the other two big ones that come to mind, which are conversation. probably... I don't know the conversation. Um, yeah, you might, and he's, you know, he's got a much longer career, so he's had time to do other things. But I also get the... I get the feeling that he's kind of like George Lucas, where, like, there's just kind of a point where it's like, ah, directing's not the most interesting thing to me anymore. Yeah. He has this passion project that's been in development hell for a while now and has a lot of trouble. Mm. Um, I wonder if I don't remember the name of it, but I, I hopefully it comes out at some point because he's been working on it for a long time and he's wasted a lot of his own money on it at this point. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. Lots of recommendations. Um, but we are so far afield from uh, Maestro at this point. Yeah, well, I think we're done then. <laughs> yeah, we've. Got all we can say about it because as well, we didn't mention that at the top, but yeah, this is one of those where we don't have an outline or anything. So we just kind of go until no, well, I don't really have anything interesting to bring up unless you do. No, I don't. Well, another quick hitter here from the concessions recording studio booth here. Uh, I'm Dan. And I'm Jared. And during this podcast, I smoked 75 cigarettes.